listening to the Legitimate Podcast, hosted by Mike and Rochelle Poulton, helping you get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life every Friday at 10 a.m. Welcome to the Legitimate Podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Poulton, and as you can see, we've got our other host, Mike Poulton, and we have special guest Kevin Wheel with the Kevin Wheel team at Remax Excalibur. And welcome to our show, Legitimate, and today's topic is the luxury real estate market. And um, this show is brought to you by Realty Executives, the AZ Own It team. You can find us online at azonit.com or you can give us a call at 480-400-1297. So let's jump right into it. Today's topic, like I said, is the reality of the luxury real estate market. And with us, we have Kevin Wheel. And why don't you tell us about yourself, Kevin? Good morning. Well, I sell luxury real estate in Arizona, Paradise Valley, Scottsdale, and, and really all throughout the valley. Um, I work with buyers and sellers, obviously. I work with a little more uh, sellers than buyers. Um, and I provide a concierge service. So just showing a house, a lot of times I'll take a designer in or I'll take an architect in and we can look at changes we can make because, you know, so many of the houses are not updated and, and the product that people want today is what they see on HGTV, right? They want to see everything that's all updated. All right. So that's a little bit different than from a standard house, right? Uh, you know, you're spending a million dollars on something. You definitely want it to suit your needs. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really... You know, luxury is defined at different price points in different parts of the valley, right? So um, in Paradise Valley, a million dollars would be uh, a lot or most of a lot, right? And so a lot of times, you know, people are buying something this great. Um, in, in Mesa, I have one in, under escrow um, that's $1.2 million, and that's definitely luxury in Mesa, right? So it really does depend on what part of the valley we're in. Um, but in, in all those areas, um, it makes a lot of sense sometimes to look at properties that um, could be updated to suit one's needs and, uh, and to consider those because of the lack of supply overall. That raises an interesting point. You mentioned that luxury is different in different parts of the valley. When we talk about luxury residential real estate, uh, I think a lot of people have the sense that that's just sort of a, a descriptive designator that doesn't really have a, a clear definition. But I think it does have a clear definition in the business, doesn't it? What constitutes luxury? It's different based on the specific area that we're in, right? And so if we looked at Paradise Valley, where the median home price is $2.4 million, we might be able to say that everything in, in Paradise Valley is luxury, right? That that would be a fair statement, except maybe the teardown that we're going to, you know, scrape. Uh, <laughs> but then if we went to, to Scottsdale and we said a property that's $800,000, would that be luxury? A few years ago it probably would have been, but today it might not be. So it really depends on the on the area that we're in as far as um, you know, what constitutes luxury. And, of course, that's changing. Because I think your connection is lagging a little bit. If you're able to drop your video feed, we'll be able to hear you. Apologize for that. So let me just make an adjustment. That's there. okay. Okay. Let's see how that works. Is that better? We yes, it is. Let me know that <laughs> so you were talking about how the definition of luxury changes depending on where you are. In some areas like Paradise Valley, maybe North Scottsdale, virtually everything can reasonably be called luxury. But then when you get into Scottsdale in general, or Mesa, for example, you're looking at really only a top segment of the market. And where that threshold is between luxury and non-luxury changes depending on what the median value is and what the overall character of the properties are. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely. A- Very interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It- and then yeah. as a luxury agent, as somebody who provides that kind of concierge service and is bringing in other professionals to evaluate properties, what are your criteria for what kind of property you're going to work with? 
how do you pick clients? Because I assume you're fairly selective about who you get involved with and what kind of properties you represent. Uh, what I want to do is I want to match people who are looking for luxury properties, which what's to meet someone's need may not be this perfect uh, 4,000 square foot jewel box in Paradise Valley that was just built. It may be a property in, you know, Camelback Country Club, which looks like 1980 something and doesn't feel very impressive inside. Um, but we can reimagine it and have a yeah. very uh, a nice property when they're done. And so, as far as you know, clientele that I work with, uh, it's it's folks that are looking to find their dream home and want to maximize their interest when they sell it and make it and make it very seamless. We're still having a little bit of a hard time hearing you. I'm not sure if, if maybe being a little closer to your mic might keep the audio going a little bit better. Let me change the, uh, the mic real quick. I apologize for this. No problem. No problem. Technical difficulties happen. <laughs> hey, Kevin, can you hear us? I can hear you fine. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. can for now. Oh, you can? We'll see how that goes. Okay. So I think a lot of people may have the impression that when you're buying a house that costs uh, well over a million dollars, maybe even several million dollars, um, people envision something kind of uh, specific. They think about the giant mansions that they see on TV, but you mentioned buying properties that need complete renovation and even reimagining them into something totally different. Uh, when I was in construction management, I worked on some projects like that in PV, and it, it was interesting to me to see that you can spend several million dollars on a house that you're now going to spend just as much renovating. And I think a lot of people don't realize that that's not uncommon at all. No, and it's becoming more and more common, and and probably a lot of it has to do with the HGTV effect, right? Because a decade ago, we didn't know, well, maybe you and I did, but the average person didn't know what today was supposed to look like. And so um, most of the houses weren't updated to the same degree. Uh, A decade ago, Tuscan was popular, but there were other styles that had been, and and people didn't have that opinion that um, anything that doesn't look like today is outdated. But now, with all those HGTV shows, everybody is familiar with what today is supposed to look like, right? And because of that, anything which doesn't have, which doesn't match what we see on HGTV, just to put it bluntly, um, or isn't in some vein of that, is looked at as outdated. And that happens a lot more quickly than it used to. And, and reality is that the, the prop, that it costs to update a property, um, is not that significant when you're talking about a, you know, a two and a half million dollar property. Because, you know, you may use a slightly more expensive tile. You may use marble instead of porcelain. But the reality is it's still tile. And so if you're updating a 4,000 square foot home that's worth $800,000, you know, the, the cost is a considerable amount of that $800,000. If you're updating a house that costs $1.7 million, it's still a significant amount. And to your earlier point, yeah, you could spend the same amount, you know, reimagining that house. But it's not that big of a deal to redo the kitchen and the flooring yeah. and the paint to make it look like today. And I, I just sold a property in True North at $1.7 million, which looked beautiful, beautiful Tuscan. And so it didn't look beautiful to the eyes of the buyer today. Um, but the buyer of that property is completely redoing it, and, and that's really what a lot of people are doing right now because, um, you know, in the scope of buying a luxury home, um, it's worth it to spend more to make it look like you want it to look today um, and not like we liked 10 years ago. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier that a million dollars doesn't buy you a house in Paradise Valley. A million dollars might buy you a lot. 
And the old house would have been scraped because if it, if it wasn't scraped, it'll cost you forty five thousand. No, that's crazy. <laughs> that, that is very much like the project that I worked on on the North Face of Camelback uh, right at the end of my time in construction management, uh, removal of an existing house and uh, construction of a new house that costs substantially more than what was there in the first place. And those projects are not unusual, but it, it ends up that the cost of these sorts of jobs and the uh, the economics of them looks a lot more like commercial real estate than many residential projects because you're dealing with value of land that reduces proportionally the expense of doing a renovation on that project. So you can renovate a house like that. You mentioned that it can be fairly affordable comparatively to renovate a multi-million dollar home because the cost of that location is tremendous. And you don't have to pay a portion of that when you renovate it. Um, and you may be able to work with the existing landscaping largely. You may be able to work with the existing site improvements largely. Um, you end up with probably proportionally a cheaper renovation on a very expensive house compared to its market value than you do on a typical home. Would you say that that's what you're experiencing? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think one of the fun parts about the luxury market, especially when you're dealing with you know, multi-million dollar homes is that it is more of a math analysis. Like there's a lot of emotion involved and you do want to make it look good, but you don't want to overspend either. But if you're planning on staying in the home for 10 years, does it really matter? Right. And then there's some properties that you would more overspend on than others. Um, a property with a great view, uh, maybe you can't overspend on that the way you could the one that doesn't. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm putting a property on the market in Paradise Valley that has just amazing views. And the seller actually feels that it's a little dated because it was, you know, it was done, um, you know, 10 years ago. It's still a very attractive property. Um, but a property like that with just amazing views and the same thing on a property like in Clearwater, you know, Clearwater Hills, anything like that. You really can't overdo those because somebody's going to pay for those views, and you almost can't over-improve those. Well, there are other properties where um, you could over-improve it, and you might not choose to do that. Awesome. And so as the, you know, guide through this process, is that what you're kind of matching up people's needs? Like, what do you really want versus what you can and can't or shouldn't do? <laughs> yeah. Very often, um, part of the equation is, does this house make sense to improve or uh, does it not make as much sense? Because there are some properties which which are nice and they're similar to the air, to the others in the area. And is that the property that you're going to want to improve? Um, you could if you wanted to, but but from an economic standpoint, that one might not make the best sense. Whether well, well, there's other properties where there's properties right by it which are twice as expensive or half again as expensive, and and you could actually add value by buying that property and making it look like 2021. So, yeah, it really, I think a lot of it is is choosing properties which make sense to improve based on the long-term projection of how that area is going to do. Because even though we can, we can improve any property to suit our needs and to enjoy, and that's fine, um, most of the time, we're looking at it from the standpoint of, hey, does this make good economic sense as well? And we want to choose one that makes good economic sense as well to improve. Now, do you see much investor activity in the luxury market segment compared to the rest of the market? Are people well, we, buying homes yeah, like this for investment? There's less, but we do see some, and we see some for a couple of reasons. Um, we actually see um, properties that are being flipped in the luxury market because the finished product is worth so much more than the unimpressive 1990s. 
Chinese version. And I sold a property um, in Ancala, and this is about, I guess, six months ago, which was, at the time, a million-dollar property, and, and it was bought to be a flip. Um, and so, you know, we do see that as well. And then, you know, also in Paradise Valley, um, some people are choosing to, you know, Verbo or Airbnb properties. And so, you know, if they're only going to use it part-time, um, they may be more really of an investor than they really are of a second home. They may call it a second home, but it may be a second home that they really don't, uh, they don't visit very much. So do we see the same amount that we would in downtown Scottsdale? No, we don't. But we do see some, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So in the in the non-luxury market, you know, houses just the whole buying process is pretty quick. You know, you're talking about going shopping for a home. It's very competitive. You may have to put in tons of offers on different houses. And, you know, but still, it's a relatively short process, I think, compared to luxury. So can you talk a little bit about that, like for someone who's starting looking for a luxury home? Sure. And, and then it really depends on, on what property you're looking for. Because, no, they're not going to be 40 uh, offers on a luxury property. And I had a, a $600,000 house in Gilbert where we literally got 40 offers. And I wish it was 41 or 39 because when I say 40, it sounds like I'm rounding, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so that's the dynamic that we have um, in the more affordable properties, right? So as we get into luxury, we don't have 40 offers and we don't have 10 offers. But it's not unusual to have two or three offers. Um, generally speaking... When something first goes on the market, and that's the time that you're most likely to see multiple offers in luxury because there's only so much product on the market right now. And so it's pretty easy to see when something comes on, you know, all eyes are going to see it at about the same time. Maybe not the same day, but the same time frame. And so very often there will be a couple of competing offers, but it's nothing like it is in the lower price ranges. Um, so it's, it's almost as though... When you see a property come on, either it's going to go right away, there's going to be multiple offers or a buyer who shows up right away, or um, it may be a bit of time, which is, of course, a good thing for a buyer, right? Because they have time to go home and to talk it over and show their friends pictures on their phone of the house before they make a decision. And that's a luxury that we don't have in the reasonably priced properties. You know, decisions have to be made. Um, unfortunately, you know, immediately. Um, and there is more time to think about it in luxury. Now, it's also fair to point out that generally speaking, there is an inspection period. It may be reduced down from 10 days to some other amount of days, but there is a little bit more time, you know, for someone to, to do their due diligence and think about those things in that time frame. So I guess the last thing I want to touch on is in the luxury market, using that due diligence period, you know, like what are the the big, big mistakes that people make in luxury? The, the big mistakes that people would make would be not knowing the area and knowing if the area matches what they're looking for or not. Um, because very often they're coming from, from whether it's Minnesota or from California, and they're relying on um, others to, to tell them, you know, what areas are like. If they don't spend enough time driving around and getting a feel for things, um, they, they could make a mistake because, you know, some people want to be able to bike to um, to coffee and to have a quick Uber to dinner. And so they may want to be, if you're looking at Paradise Valley, and they could be in, in Cheney Place, right? You know, and they could be across the street and have dinner. They could walk across the street. Other people, that's not as important to. They may want to be more secluded. And um, But those types of things, knowing the area, uh, the specific areas you're looking for, um, that's, that's where someone could make a mistake and buy something that they didn't enjoy as much. Or if they didn't do their due diligence regarding if this was a problem 
property that, that made a lot of sense to update or not, um, that's another area. So the typical, you know, plumbing, electrical, um, roof, AC, like, you know, you're going to spend a fortune on that. So people are a little less concerned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, someone's still going to get a home inspection and those things are going to be covered in that. The, the types of things that, that are easier to miss are, you know, if you're looking at a property in Clearwater Hills and you want to totally reimagine it, um, that's just a great place to do it. But you want to find one that's not too small because those properties are older, and some of those older houses are 4,000 square feet. Perfect. That's what people want today. Um, there's a lot more people who want a 4,000-square-foot home in Paradise Valley um, than want the larger homes that were built, you know, 12 years ago. Um, but then there's the point where if something's too small, then it doesn't really suit people's needs as much because they may not have that, that those guest quarters, and they may not have as big a space that they need to entertain. And so there are some properties that, um, you know, they're just at that perfect size and they have clean lines that match today's, you know, contemporary um, design. And there's other properties that are harder to reimagine in, into today's uh, standards, either because um, the, the layout of the house would almost have to be completely changed or scraped or... Um, it's just too small. And those two things can be, can be fixed as well, obviously, but that costs a lot more money as a totally different equation than just updating something. Yeah, reimagine. Awesome. Well, I think as everyone can hear, you're a complete expert in this area. So, uh, why don't you tell our listeners how they can reach you? Well, you can uh, call me at uh, 602-793-7492, or the easiest way uh, also is to text me or just email me at Kevin, my name, Kevin, at KevinWild.com. I think that's down below on the screen, but uh, pretty easy to get a hold of. Awesome. You can Google him, and he comes up everywhere. (laughs) I've been around for a while. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you, Kevin, for being on the show, and uh, we really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. And up with us now, we have the awesome connector, Karen Joseph, with seven networking, bringing entrepreneurs together. You can find them online at seven.org with dashes in between the letters. Karen, tell us all about your awesome self. Sure. Well, thank you for having me on here. This is super exciting. Um, I love people. I love connecting people. So when you reached out to me and you said, you want to be on the podcast? I was like, of course. So yeah, so I'm originally a New Yorker. And I don't know what you guys know about New Yorkers, but I think we are born connectors. (laughs) When I went to my very first networking meeting out here in Arizona... We had moved from New York to Arizona um, almost 15 years ago. My husband left corporate America. We opened up a business, and um, a friend invited me to a networking group. I said, networking, what's that? I went to the group, and I was like, oh, I've been doing this my whole life. <laughs> so I learned it definitely from my parents, and I say it's in my genes as well. So like I said, I love bringing people together. Um, building communities is one of my fortes, so... Not only do I have 7 Networking, which is a great place for small business owners to come together to build those relationships and learn and grow and prosper together, but I also have lots of other different communities um, right here in Arizona. So Kindness Connectors Group, um, New Yorkers Living in the Desert Group, so all kinds of fun, a lunch bunch group. All the things I love to do, I just reach out, find the people, bring them together. We do it together because it's always a lot more fun when you're doing things with other people. 
So, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you're having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with somebody every day. <laughs> I, 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 love, I love eating out. I'm married to a wonderful man for 28 years. He is a total, total introvert. I am a total extrovert, so <laughs> he keeps me grounded, but I have to find ways to keep myself out and about. So, yes, I'm out a lot. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit about uh, seven, the seven group altogether. Like, what's the format? What do they do? Yeah. What do people, like, would realtors benefit from building a network in a seven group? Yeah. You know what? I think anyone and everyone would benefit from building a network, um, be it if you are a business owner. I think of way back when my dad had the Rolodex on his desk, right? Those are the people he could reach out to if he needed something um, or, you know, whatever. They would reach out to him. He would reach out to them. That's basically what networking is. You're building that network, those people you can pick up the phone and call in good times. You know, maybe you want to get together with them and have a drink with them. Maybe you need them for a project you're working on. Maybe you need them because you have to connect them with someone, or maybe you just need that person in your life because you're going through a rough time and that's the person you can call on who will, you know, help you get through it. So I really do believe everyone needs a network. You know, some people call it a tribe. Some people call it a group, whatever you call it. You just need those people around you. And, um, my feeling is people need people. So, yeah, so at 7 Networking, we meet weekly. We have weekly meetings. Um, we're coming up on our 12-year anniversary in August. And the group started just as happenstance. I never planned on being the owner of a networking organization. But um, when I started the group, we were an all-women's group to start. The ladies kept coming back week after week. And I said, I guess they need this type of networking. So we started branching out, growing. We have chapters throughout the United States, many meetings on Zoom each week, since everyone knows the word Zoom now since COVID. <laughs> we had meetings on Zoom before, but now they're asking for the Zoom meetings. Before, I was like, come on, let's... You know, if you have a business without borders, why not meet people who are across the United States? So, yeah, so we meet weekly um, for 75 minutes. We do a lot of education at our meetings because I was a teacher my past life back in New York City, and I love learning. I feel like we can all, all learn from each other. You know things I don't know. I might know something the next person doesn't know. So if we come together, put our heads together, we can go farther. So, yeah, so that's a little bit about 7 Networking, and we have all types of small business owners who are members. Um, you know, we're the fun group. Another one of my mottos is, if it's not fun, I don't want any part of it. I am a cancer survivor, and life can be very short. So, you know, why not seize the moment, make the most of what you have, and enjoy the journey while you're, while you're going through it. That's an excellent philosophy. So what's your approach to building a group that works together? Um, I mean, I think we all know the BNI approach. They've come up with uh, some very specific rules to construct a networking group that they think works well together. Uh, probably a lot of our listeners have tried BNI. Uh, some may have moved on from the BNI approach. Uh, Rochelle and I did it for a little bit and then moved on to less structured organizations. Um, are you guys category exclusive? Do you have any kind of a, a relationship, formalized relationship tracking approach, or is it more of a loose social kind of interaction? 
How does that's it, a great, that's a wonderful question. Um, yes. And, you know, I think we are so fortunate in Phoenix because we have so many different types of networking organizations, right? Some people love a very structured, strict type of group. Seven networking is not that. Seven networking would not be for that person who is focused, who wants to get up and do their 30-second commercial in 30 seconds. Beep, 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 you're done. No. My (laughs) feeling is if you need 45 seconds, you know what? So be it. You know, life is short. Take your 45 seconds, right? Um, so, so yeah, so we are in a structured, we are a social networking organization. So we're all about building those relationships. The time you put into networking, you will get out of networking. You know, it's the people who show up regularly, who are there to help others because networking is just helping other people. You know, I say you help others, the universe will send it back to you. It might be from the person you helped. It might come from another place, right? We don't know. But we don't we don't track the referrals. You know, people do do business together. I see it, I hear it. We talk about, you know, testimonials at the end of every meeting, but we don't officially, you know, write on those little slips. Um we are not industry exclusive because in my world, in my mind, in my head, why should you tell me that I have to do business with, you know, so-and-so over there, that photographer? Yeah. Maybe I don't click with that photographer. Maybe I don't gel with them. Maybe, you know, I, I want to do business with another photographer in the group. Why should, you know, why should I be told that I have to do business with that person. So, yes, people do, you know, do business together, but we do not sit there and track the referrals. We don't talk about, um, we have a couple rules at seven. One is we don't talk about the money stream involved in the recruiting side of your business because some people are in, you know, MLMs, direct sales. So I don't want people coming up and talking about, you know, the money stream uh, side of the business. But other than that, they're free to, you know, talk about whatever they want at the meetings um, and just have a good time together. And, you know, we have many members who have been members for nine years, 10 years, 11 years. We have people leave, they go, they look for other groups, and that's great. You know, you should. Sometimes it's time to move on. And then we have a lot of people who come back. So I know what we're doing. We're on the right path, and we will continue to be doing it. And I'm sorry I keep talking with my hands. That's an any. New York hurt me too. I, I see myself. I'm like, oh, that's awful. But anyhow. <laughs> Not at all. So, yeah, what else do you want to know about Seven? Um, like I said, we meet weekly. We do a lot of education at our meetings. One week we do an educational topic, which is a roundtable discussion, which could be a topic on branding. It could be a topic on how to be a better networker. It could be a topic mm-hmm. on, you know, maybe it's a personal development topic. Um, I asked my members, I'm like, this is your organization. What do you want to talk about? What do you want to learn about? How can we help each other support each other? And I should have mentioned that SEVEN, the S-E-V-E-N, stands for Supporting and Empowering the Vision of entrepreneurial networking. And that's really, really what we are. We're a very, very supportive group. And you asked about, you know, how do we support each other? Um, You know, we tend to get people, I guess, like attracts like, and we get a lot of very, very supportive members. Um, And the people who it's not for them, you know, we love on them and then they leave and that's fine too. 
Well, thank you very much for introducing us to your organization. How can people get in touch with you if they want to come to a meeting? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, they can go right to the seven website, s-e-v-e-n.org, and they can send a message, and I will be sure to answer. I'm quick on it. I, you know, I'm the, that's another part of the New Yorker in May. You will, you will hear back from me within a couple hours, usually. So, so yeah, come and check us out because we love meeting new people, and the more seven grows, the more everyone grows. Excellent. Thank you very much for coming on. It was great meeting you and talking with you, and hopefully uh, we can get some of our listeners to come try out a seven meeting. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Well, thanks for everyone for tuning in, and we will talk to you next